Thanks for joining us here at Thrive Church. We are a church passionate about moving people towards Jesus. For more information, go to our website, www.thrivechurch.co.za. Spring is in the air. The Springboks look like they're becoming an amazing team once again. They, they just need to learn that we play rugby for 80 minutes and not 70. And then we'll get there. We will get there. We will get there. Good to see you all this morning, and uh, I hope that you've had a great service so far. Have you ever had a question that's rattled you, like really rattled you, like, like you don't know what to do with the question? Like the question comes and you think, I have... No idea what to do with this question. A couple of years ago, I was sitting in a conference, and the question came. It was very simple, very short, and it was simply this. What will you do with your one and only life? Just like that. What will you do with your one and only life? The question rattled me. So I don't know, God. I've actually got no idea, to be honest. But I do pray that You'd give me a life of significance. Now I began to pray, oh God, please give me a life of significance. It was the wrong prayer to pray. You might be wondering, why is that? Sounds like a legit prayer. It's the wrong prayer to pray. Sometimes we pray the wrong stuff. Not because our heart's in the wrong place, just because we don't know better. I began to pray, God, give me a life of influence. And it was like, I gave you a brain. I gave you a heart. I gave you breath in your lungs. We pray, God, give us chairs. Give us tables. And God says, I gave you a brain in your head. And I gave you a breath in your lungs with which to forge your life. Make your own life. Develop your own life. Build your own life. Do something incredible with your life. He's given you everything you need. This morning we kick off a series called The Life of Influence. And I, my prayer is that something of what Bishop Jake spoke about would just be caught by us. That we'd become people who pray for truth. Pray for eyes to see the trees. That we create lives of influence ourselves. And I still catch myself praying prayers of like, oh, give me a table and give me a chairs, God. And I thought, I wonder why I do that. I think sometimes it's tradition. Well, we've always prayed for tables and chairs. I'm not going to stop now. Sometimes it's because of complacency, isn't it? Well, God, it would be a real mission to make a table or chair, so you give me one. Sometimes it's fatigue. God, I'm too tired to make a table or chair. Sometimes it's just laziness. I don't want to make a table or chair. Are you with me? Is my mic still on Okay. There's an incredible man in scripture 
that when we were setting the foundations for the series, there was only really one guy we could think of that would lay the platform for this series, a man called Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a leader extraordinaire. Nehemiah was an incredible man who built an incredible life of influence. Nehemiah was born into captivity in Babylon. Some years before that, his nation, the nation of Israel, had been sent off into exile by God. This nation, although God had designed them to be his favorite people, still desires them to be his people. This nation had left his paths. This nation had drifted away. Nation Israel had moved away from the teaching and the principles of God. And despite warning after warning after warning, despite God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the nation, hey guys, you're heading down the wrong path, they still insisted on doing what they did. Isn't it amazing how warning after warning after warning, sometimes we get warning after warning after warning, we just don't heed it. And so Israel gets sent off into exile. They get enslaved, conquered, captured by the Babylonians. In 586 BC, Israel gets marched off to Babylon in shackles with nose rings around their noses so that they can be chained together like slaves. It's into that captivity that Nehemiah is born. But because he is who he is, pretty soon Nehemiah rises through the ranks of the Babylonian kingdom. Pretty soon he becomes cupbearer to the king whose name is Artaxerxes. If you're pregnant and thinking of names, I think Artaxerxes could be a good man. It's got a very Persian feel to it. He's cupbearer. He's the king's most trusted servant, right? One day Nehemiah is in the court of the king, serving as he normally does. Some of his people, in fact, his brothers come from Jerusalem. You see, when the Israelites were led off into captivity, there was a small group left there called the remnant, just left there to try and scrape together whatever living they could from this land that had been devastated, from the cities and farms that had been destroyed by the conquering Babylonians. Nehemiah receives his brothers into the royal court. They give him a report. They tell him, Jerusalem lies in ruins. Jerusalem's been sacked. The state of it is terrible. The city that God loves, the this, this city, Nehemiah, that you're a, a part of by your heritage, it lies in ruins. Understand, remember, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He was born into captivity. But something about the story hits him. Something about the story strikes him at the core of who he is. And he begins to get this burden for Jerusalem. Nehemiah begins to pray, begins to fast. He's down on his knees weeping, God, what to do with this city? And then Nehemiah prays a prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Let's check it out. It says, oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today. Watch his prayer, church. By making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah, of all the prayers that he prays, he could have prayed, God, would you give me the resource, 
Would you give me the wood? Would you give me the stones? Would you give me the workers? Would you give me the finance? Would you give me everything I need? Nehemiah doesn't pray for tables and chairs, church. He prays for a tree. Make the king favorably disposed. Let him send me. I'll make the tables and chairs. I'll get the job done. And so Nehemiah embarks on his journey. He travels from modern day Iraq, Babylon, Persia, and he heads to Jerusalem. He arrives at the city. The city's in ruins. He surveys the scene and he begins the rebuilding project. He begins to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He begins to sow his influence into the life of this devastated community. Long story short, in fact, 13 chapters of Nehemiah condensed. He embarks on this incredible building project and he finishes the project in 52 days. Isn't that incredible? 52 days. I want to offer you some lessons this morning just from Nehemiah's life around how it is that he built a life of influence and you can do the same. Nehemiah prayed for a tree. Oh God, give me eyes to see. He sat in his, in his devastation and he said, I'll do something about it. But God, I need a tree. Just give me permission and I'll go. And the king favorably disposed towards him, sends him on his way. And then Nehemiah looks at the scene when he gets there and he realizes, man, God, you gave me the tree to get here. You know, you gave me the permission that was needed. But I need a lot more than a vision for what the city, I need to know, how am I going to rebuild this wall? How, how am I going to make the tables and chairs? You see, it takes more than just a tree that God provides. It, it takes the head to know what to do with the tree. Let me tell you, God could give you a tree. The question for you and me is, do you know what to do with the tree when he gives it to you? Could you make tables and chairs if God gave you a tree? In your life, look around, what's he given you? It takes more than raw material to build a wall. It takes strategy. It takes a brain. It takes thinking. It takes planning. And so Nehemiah had the eyes to see the city. He had the faith to pray for the tree. But he had the brain to know how to make the tables and chairs. So he begins to set about the great work of rebuilding these walls. He begins to make his table and his chair. And Nehemiah employs seven incredible principles that no matter what you're building this morning, it might be a business, it might be an endeavor, it might be a company that you're involved with, it might be a farm, it might be a game lodge, it might be kids, it might be a school, it might be church. I don't know what it is that you're building, but these seven principles will help you this morning. You ready to go? Nehemiah employs the principle of simplification. He keeps it simple. He arrives on the scene. He looks to see who's doing what, who's where, 
And the first thing he does is he groups all the people that are hanging out together already. He groups them together and says, hey, you guys are going to build together. He doesn't embark on a 30-day MBA crash course, the MBA's or the dummy's guide to rebuilding walls. He uses his brain. He says, ah, see, all the goldsmiths hang out together. All the perfume makers hang out together. All the priests hang out together. All the Levites hang out together. All the men of that tribe hang out together. All the women of that tribe. Hey, guys, I've got a job for you. Guess what? You're going to work together. Nice and simple. I wonder what we could build in our lives if we just kept it simple. I feel like there's a word for somebody here this, this morning. You, you haven't started something because you think it's too simple. You're not using something because you think, oh, that's too simple. Don't underestimate the power of a good idea that could just be simple. And then Nehemiah employs the principle of participation. Everybody's going to get involved. Perfume makers, goldsmiths, Levites, priests, everybody's going to get involved, right? He enlists everybody, but despite enlisting everybody, not everybody wanted to participate. Check it out in Nehemiah 3 verse 5. I love this. It's just like a little one-liner that he just looks at and then he moves on. He goes, next to the people from Tekoa helping to build, though their leaders refused to help. Nehemiah looks at this. Everybody's in, oh, but there's always somebody, hey, who doesn't want it. In any organization, not in church, of course, but there's always, there's, there's workers and there's shirkers, those who are not. Nehemiah doesn't pay attention to the shirkers. He's like, we've got walls to build. We're going to get this job done. And he begins to rebuild without the leaders of the people of Tekoa. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, are you a worker or a shirker? Right now. And if you're a in church, in church, are you a worker or a shirker? See, there's so many people that come along and they build into this place. They're giving their time, their talents, their gifts, their treasures. But I could stand on my head here. I mean, Matt could hold my legs up over here. I could, should we give it a bash? Actually, let's just, I could stand on my head and, and, and some of you still would feel, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay a shirker, thanks. But I do pray that as a life of influence captures your imagination, that you decide to be a worker, that you'd participate. Some of you are great with all sorts of amazing things, and you're just sitting on your talents. Come on. Be a worker. Everybody said, Amen. Nehemiah employed the principle of delegation. Delegation. So he said, hey, you guys, this is your specific section of the wall. You're going to build from this gate to that section, right? Very specific. He gave very specific outcomes. Because the thing is, when everything is everybody's responsibility, it pretty soon becomes nobody's responsibility. So he's like, you guys will be accountable for this wall. And then he had to motivate them. He employed the principle of motivation. You know how he did this. I, I, I thought about this. The man was a genius. He gets to the walls. He looks at them. He tries to figure out, how am I going to motivate this devastated, down and out people whose city is trashed? How am I going to motivate them to rebuild these walls? 
He has one idea. It's a genius idea. He says, okay, every family, you're going to build the section, rebuild the section of the wall that's closest to your house. That way I know you'll do it excellently. Because it's close to home. It's amazing when things are close to home, we want them to be well done, don't we? We want them to be excellent. When, when, this is, when this church is home for you, you want it to do well. You want it to do better. You want everybody to thrive. Excuse the pun. God's still with me this morning. He gets the principle of cooperation going. All right, guys, what's going to happen? We're going to rotate guards. Some of us need to guard. We're going to rotate the gods. We're going to rotate builders. Some of you are going to have weapons. Some of you are going to have building shovels. Some of you are going to have both in your hands. He gets everybody to cooperate together. Did you know this? Geese fly 72% further when they're in formation than when they're not. Just by geese cooperating, they can fly further. I wonder what could happen in your organization, in what you're building, in your business, in your department, in your school, in your classroom, whatever it is, if you increase the levels of cooperation amongst people. Uh, In the book of Acts, in the first 10 chapters of Acts, the, the, the wording called one accord. They were of one accord. They were of one mind. They were of one heart. That occurs 10 times in the first 10 chapters of Acts. The wording one another, the one anotherness in in Scripture occurs 58 times in the New Testament alone. They loved one another. They supported one another. They gave to one another. They prayed for one another, child. They sang with one another. Are you with me? One another. If you could improve the one anotherness in the areas in which you're involved and over which you have influence, your geese could fly further. Nehemiah employed there principle of administration. There's a guy called Tom Peters. He wrote a book called Passion for Excellence. He speaks about the principle of management by walking around. He just, Nehemiah would walk the walls. Ah, that needs fixing up. That needs touching up. That needs redoing. In your business, walk around a little bit. In your department, walk around. In your school, walk around. In your farm, walk around. In your company, Walk around. Guess what you'll see? In this church, walk around. See stuff. Oh, that doesn't look good. We could fix that. I could help with that. Management by walking around. Again, you don't have to have an MBA to have influence. You just need to sometimes walk around. And then the principle of appreciation. Nehemiah goes to great lengths, and it's actually quite irritating and quite boring. You kind of get to the middle of Nehemiah, and he starts to list all sorts of people. And what he's doing is he's listing who built the wall in which place. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible to read. It's like, his names, you know, it's just name after name after name. But what he was doing is was expressing the principle of appreciation. He was saying, hey, these guys have made such an incredible influence. I'm going to make sure that they go down in history. That their their names are in black and white. Which is why, like once a year as a church, we we make a big deal of our volunteer appreciation. We we put on a party for our our serve teams. Because we want to appreciate. Because we get an opportunity to love. Some people say to, say to me, oh, that's like, that's, that's like favoring some people. No, we just want to love 
our volunteers and say thank you. Can you imagine if the church had to pay for the staff of the volunteers? Can you imagine that staff bill? It'd be crazy, right? So volunteer appreciation is coming up in a couple of weeks. Those of you who are ser serve and who are workers, not shirkers, you've received your invitations. If you haven't, speak to your team leader, please. The most appreciated team in this church is the new pizza team that's been created. Quick, quick uh, round of appreciation for the pizza team. It used to be the coffee guys. Now the coffee guys have all got dick lips because they're not as loved as the pizza guys. So please, when you go and ask for coffee, please tell them you still love them. And in order to boost the coffee morale of the coffee team, we've introduced freezos that they can give you. And just so, when you ask for a freezer, tell them you still love them, okay? Because the pizza team are now standing behind the pizza counter thinking they're sexy. Um, some of them have even got aprons on. I mean, grown men with aprons. <laughs> I'm kidding, and you made me lose my way. So, Nehemiah has the eyes to see and the faith to pray for the tree. He has the mind to make the tables and chairs. God, give me the strategy to rebuild these walls. God gives him these seven things. It's awesome. And then Nehemiah, as he embarks on the work, he soon encounters opposition and criticism. Anybody here in church who's built anything, you'll know opposition and criticism come as part of the course. I get a whoosh email every now and then. Some from somebody who tells me, I can't possibly love Jesus because we lock the church gates 10 minutes after the service starts. You can't possibly have a heart for Boxburg. What happens if there was somebody off the street who God just inspired to come into our church and could have got saved and now they're going to hell because of you? This is the email I get. So once I've calmed down, then I reply. Um, but... Uh, we say, well, it's because we love the people that God has given to us, such that because we live in Johannesburg, we want their cars to be safe. We want their kids to be safe. We want them to be safe while they're sitting in church. Plus, we want people to come to church on time so that it's not a free-for-all so that you're not pulling into the service at 20 past or like 20 minutes after the start of the service, disrupting everybody, pushing past you. You know like they do in the movies where they're pushing with their bum past you like this and you're trying to eat your popcorn and somebody's busy pushing and you, somebody's trying to worship but no, because you were late, because you were so slack, you couldn't get yourself to church on time. Now you want to disrupt somebody else's worship. So we say, we love our people and we disciple our people and I believe that if God wants to save that person, they'll gladly come back the next week. If salvation's that important to them, they will come back. And guess what? 99% of the people who get turned away when they're late, say, thank you, we understand, we appreciate. It's only 1% muhu in Boxburg. <laughs> and the thing is, when we, when we, we often take a census and we say, are oh, you from Brackpan? Nobody from Brackpan ever complains. <laughs> Just kidding. But criticism 
an opposition comes, on a serious note, can I, can I encourage you, church? Every now and then I need to say these things. If church starts at 8.30 or 10.30, make sure you're here a few minutes early. Don't scream in here like, man, like, like take out the car guards and the car attendants and like walk in and like, and you're in the, by the third song. Let's make sure we honor God by being on time. Like you would at your job. Yes. Pains me that I have to say these things, but like I do, clearly. And if you're asked to sit somewhere, please sit where the ushers are asking you to sit. Here's the thing. Let me use the example. Yesterday, the Springboks lost, but it was a packed house, hey, packed house. Can you imagine, uh, think about all that energy that was in the stadium yesterday when the Springboks were playing, because everybody was together. Now picture that stadium with one person dotted down that side, a few clumped on the main stand, a few guys down there, a few guys down there, and now the Springboks are playing out of their socks. I mean, they're playing, but they hear every now and then when they're down one side of the field, they just hear a few lone voices, go Boca, go Boca. And they get to the other, go Boca, go. There's no roar, because the people aren't together. That's why room dynamics, group dynamics is really important. We want, we want to, I want to preach to filled chairs, so we fill up from the front. Are you with me? Because we're better together, because your energy is together, because you, your presence encourages somebody. Are you with me? So all of these things, I just have to ask him. You do be gracious in and be kind. And remember that you follow Jesus. So don't look at anybody when you're at church. So Nehemiah gets a thick skin, right? He encounters opposition from a few parties. He encounters opposition, firstly, from three enemies that he's got. Sanballat, again, a great name if you're thinking of kids. Tobiah and Gershom. Three, three guys from outside the nation of Israel that don't like what's going on because they want Israel to stay where they are. Secondly, he encounters opposition from the people themselves. You know what the people say as they're busy building the walls? Guess the, uh, wait for it. It's classic. They go, oh, Nehemiah, there's so much rubble. How are we going to continue? Nehemiah's like, do you want your bulls, walls rebuilt or not? And then he encounters opposition from the Jewish um, nobles that don't like the fact that now, all of a sudden, the city's gonna be strong again and their influence over the poor is gonna be reduced. So Nehemiah encounters this opposition and he's got a choice as to what to do. Ah, there's my note, thank you. And he responds. So let's have a look at it in Nehemiah chapter four, verse one to three. Sanballat, this dude, who is his enemy, was very angry. When he learned we were rebuilding the wall, he flew into a rage, mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can rebuild the wall in a single day? Do they actually think they can make something of stones that have been in a rubbish heap and, and charred ones at that? Can you, hear the, can you hear the venom in his voice? Can you hear how much he despises these people? And Tobiah, the Ammonite, his friend, Sanballat's friend, he's standing nearby and he goes, ah, oh, yeah, this wall's so weak. If a fox had to walk along the top of it, this thing would fall down. He's like mocking. Nehemiah encounters opposition. But Nehemiah responds in two important and profound ways. Nehemiah 4 verse 14, let's check it out. He says, as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people. He, he called them into a huddle, right? Anytime your team is struggling, it needs a huddle. 
said, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. Watch this. He goes, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Nehemiah looks at the opposition and the first thing he does is he mobilizes the people. He prepares the people. He tells them, listen to you. You're going to get opposition. You better start fighting. So he says, hey guys, we're going to build with one hand and fight with another. Hey, we're going to station ourselves around the wall with a sword in one hand and a building trial in the other. If, if you want to build a life of influence, you're going to... In, you're going to encounter opposition. You're going to encounter criticism. That's the time to push in. That's the time to get more determined, more aggressive about what it is that God has called you to do. You can't shrink back. You can't, oh, woe is me. Oh, we can't do it. No, you've got to take it head on. And you've got to stand there and say, well, I will arm myself if I need to. But we are going to rebuild these walls. Are you with me? And then the second way Nehemiah responds is, you see, first they try to dissuade him. Then they try to distract him. Check out the next text. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them. Check it out now. So he's like, we can't dissuade Nehemiah. We can't, we can't threaten our way, so let's distract him. So they call for a meeting. How many of you know so many meetings can be a distraction? How many of you are meeting fatigue at your, at your company? There we go. Struck a bit of a chord there. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet you, Muhu? Is what he's saying. Listen, I can't come down and eat ice cream and endava with you. Because I'm too busy working. I've got something to do. If you want to build a life of influence and significance, you're going to have to learn how to... Resist the dissuaders and repel the detractors and move past the distractors. Are you with me this morning? Everybody intensity okay? Then Nehemiah comes on the scene and as he's busy rebuilding, he notices something devastating. He notices that the poor people in the land are being oppressed, marginalized. He notices that the Jewish nobles have been oppressing the, their poor fellow countrymen. They've been charging them exorbitant interest rates. So not only is it bad enough that the Babylonian Empire has imposed huge taxes on these people, worse than Etols, by the way, huge taxes. Not only are there these level of taxes, but the Jewish people, their own kinsmen, their own family, as they've risen up the ranks, now begin to, to charge like loan shark rates of their own people. Nehemiah looks at this and he goes, no, 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 this is not right. This is what we're going to do. You're going to stop your exorbitant interest being charged. Second, you're going to return the property that you've now repossessed from your fellow countrymen. Nehemiah says, I'm not going to take my daily food allowance, which I'm due as the governor of, Babylon, uh, of Jerusalem. I'm not going to acquire property, and I'm going to get busy working on the wall with you. See, Nehemiah led from the front. Why? Because he had a heart filled with integrity and filled with love for his people. If we want to build lives of influence, church, we're going to need to do it with hearts that are for people. We're going to need to do it with high levels of integrity. We're going to need to do it 
loving the people that God has cared or entrusted into our care. Back to the question, what will you do with your one and only life? Which is the question, the question for all of us really, isn't it? What will you do with your one and only life? You see, because you're not just a managing director, you're a leader of people. You're not just a teacher, you're a shaper of young lives. You're not just a carpenter making tables and chairs, you're bringing people together. You're not just a nurse, you're a dispenser of care and comfort. You're not just a pharmacist, you're giving um, health to people. You're not just a farmer, you're helping feed our nation. You're not just a business owner making a bucket load of money. You're a kingdom builder. You're, you've been given wealth to build this kingdom. You're not just a stay-at-home mom or dad. You're a shaper of young lives and a provider of care and comfort at home. You're a home builder. You're an atmosphere creator. But can you see Can you see what God's put on your life? Can you see what he's given you to do? Now go and build it with influence. Ask him for the strategy to build. Ask him for the thick skin to withstand the criticism and the obstacles that come your way. And ask him to keep your heart for the people. May we become a church that prays to see the trees. And may we become people who build tables and chairs with what God's put in our brains, with what he's created us to design and think about. And may your life count. You see, the most spiritual thing you and I could ever do is to choose. We get to choose. You don't have to change the world, you just have to change your world. You don't have to fix the world's problems, you have to fix your world's problems. You don't have to build tables and chairs for the entire earth, you just have to build a table and chairs for the people in your world. You're with me this morning, everybody in the 1030 who is alive and kicking and who God was speaking to, say amen. Amen. Come, would you stand to your feet this morning? If you want to see the trees, I'm specifically asking for those who want to see trees. Tree seers. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, I can't see the wood for the trees right now. You stretch out your hands to heaven. You know, sometimes physical posture is indicative of spiritual temperature. Oh God, let us, let us please see the trees. Let us see what it is you've given us. You, you gave Nehemiah one thing and that was favor to get to Jerusalem. He built the rest. Let us be those people. Oh God, help us to stop being a people who keep praying for tables, keep praying for chairs. Help us to be people who create tables, create chairs.
drop your hands and just, just let's remain with every head bowed and eye closed. I want to give you a moment and an opportunity this morning to respond to Jesus. I, I really need you to grasp what I'm about to say now, church. It's the most important thing. There was one tree in particular that God designed the human being to see. That is the tree of the cross of Christ. Galatians chapter 3.13 tells us that Jesus took on his shoulders all of the dysfunction that we were born into and that we accumulate in our lives and that we display in our lives. Our sin, our shame, our darkness, our difficulty, our wrong thinking, every ounce of guilt, shame, he took it on his shoulders, the scripture tells us, when he hung on a tree. In fact, the Bible tells us in that verse that he became a curse for us so that we could be blessed because scripture says, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. And so Christ hung on the cross for you, for me, that he would become for us this morning I want to invite you I want to warmly invite you to see the tree of the cross for the first time and to make a decision to follow Christ that means that you're making a decision not only to be with him to begin to learn about this man called Jesus but you're going to make a decision to become like him you're going to make a decision to do what he did. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This message was recorded live at Thrive Church. We hope that it inspired you to move towards Jesus.